and it's not playing music, so we're not going to do intro music. Okay. Good afternoon. It's ten. It's October first. Where we only have one more quarter of this year of 2019, and I'm not sure where the first three quarters went at all. This is Michael Vandervoort, and I am hosting the this episode of Drive Through for this week solo because Robin schooling my co-host is uh in las vegas enjoying the hr tech conference which i have never been able to attend and hope to do one of these days but we're still going to do a show our show our guest today is juliana stancampiano uh juliana welcome to drive through hr how are you today yeah thanks so much i am really good and uh, excited to be here yeah, I'm glad to have you. Um, you're you have an interesting background. I'm going to ask you. So you you're, you're an author of a book called Radical Outcomes, and you are, are also the CEO of a company and have been an entrepreneur. So you got a lot of stuff going on. We're going to talk today, I guess, about how to stop wasting money on ineffective training programs. But before we jump into that conversation, Juliana, why don't you, uh, for the benefit of our listeners today and in the future. Tell us who, who you are and a little bit more about yourself than I just provided. Yeah, sounds good. Happy to. So um, I was just saying, too, I got out of a, another podcast, and I find it really fascinating how people get into this stream of business around corporate education or corporate enablement, because we don't, there's not a typical path for people, right. and everybody comes from a different place, right? So my degree is in business, which is probably part of why you see the CEO by my name because I'm interested in uh, business and how it works. And I did a bunch of entrepreneurship classes when I was in college, but um, I also thought I would potentially become a lawyer because I wanted to help people. Uh, my father was a lawyer. And so that was kind of the model that I saw growing up. And then uh, luckily my mom was a teacher, but I knew that um, I, and it, <laughs> this is maybe going to sound kind of, kind of crass, but, um, I was going to go out and I was going to support myself and I didn't want to do it on a teacher's income, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't going to go K through 12 by any means, um, and kind of try to figure out what I wanted to do. And in doing so ended up in business, um, went and worked for a large law firm before I, uh, committed to law school, which was like such a blessing, um, and having done it, I met so many smart people that were just fantastic, but realized that being a lawyer wasn't what I was meant to do. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and ended up on kind of the HR side of things and um, doing recruiting, which I would relate to a lot of sales, uh, sales yep. skills that goes into recruiting for a large firm. And then, um, and then ended up jumping over the pond and being in Europe for four years. And really while I was there, I learned, um, through some work that I was doing with Microsoft and with the development of the people there um, that you could learn through a way that was much more hands-on and experiential in nature. And I remember showing up to an event and, and thinking, Oh my gosh, if my college experience had been more of this and less of somebody lecturing at me, I would have learned so much more. Um, and then I realized that in the corporate space, what was happening is that we actually are fairly fortunate through K through 12 and then your, your college education, because there is an opportunity to test things out and to, to have a more experiential environment around you. But when you hit the corporate world, you're just plagued with information and mm -hmm. so much stuff coming at you. Um, and this expectation that all of a sudden that because you're an adult, you can like consume large quantities of PowerPoint and be able to do something with it. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I really, I, I struggled with that and I couldn't do it. And I had the opportunity to go through this experiential learning at one point, And I thought, wow, if we could do this more broadly, think about how much more successful our people will be and how much more successful as individuals we can be in the role that we've been hired to do. Mm-hmm. And so I got really passionate in that space um, and then kind of hence oxygen and uh, starting that in 2008 and continuing to do a lot of work with a lot of different companies. And that's, that's really where the passion and the drive has come from. Um, in growing my my own company, and then further down the line, having written a book, et cetera, with all the experience that I've been able to have. So because I haven't seen it, and I have no idea what it's about, tell tell us, before we jump into the training discussion, tell tell me about Radical Outcomes and what what it's about and what people would learn from that book. Yeah, you know, there's kind of two different sides to it. Um, It's set up around a process. Um, a new process that you can take to approaching creating stuff at work for other people. Um, And then it's interwoven with ways of working that I believe are more modern and are, we're going to see more and more and more of, and we are starting to hear about them and see them more, but still have a long ways to go to be pervasive in our kind of society um, around collaboration and transparency and authenticity and a lot of these different topics but mm-hmm. it's really bringing the, that together with how do we drive business outcomes and make certain that we're not wasting money in service of helping people be better at work. So that's a lot mm-hmm. of what you'll read about in the, in the book. Yeah, you mentioned experiential learning and I, I have some, I mean, I'm, I'm not a train. I, I mean, I do a little bit of training, but I'm not a trainer by profession, uh, HR practitioner. What, what, what kind of inspira- uh, experiential learning did you run into that influenced you so much? What, what was the topic and kind of what, how did they approach it? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, that's great. And it's funny, I was on a call this morning and there's lots of different definitions <laughs> of experiential learning. I have learned, um, but the, my first experience with, with it was I was going to a um, event when I lived in Europe uh, for Microsoft, and I expected to run into you know a lot of PowerPoints and mm-hmm. people talking at us about the business and where it was going um, and expectations of the audience. And what I got was um, extremely immersive and hands-on. And instead of people, there was some PowerPoint, but there wasn't a lot. And mm-hmm. instead of a lot of telling, there was a lot of, we're going to give you kind of this concept, and then we're going to expect you to go figure it out yourself. You need to now go learn these things about our organization, you know, like to a point of um, almost a scavenger hunt. And somebody that was mm-hmm. fairly new in the organization at that point, I got to meet way more colleagues by having to find the information through the 200 people that were there you know, I learned way more about the organization in a very consolidated um, amount of time than I could have in any other format, you know, especially about reading about it. Um, I got to hear the stories. And, and this is, I think, a lot of what we talk about when people say, we did this classroom thing or we had an in-person event. And the number one feedback that comes out of those is the best thing was connecting with my peers, <laughs> you know, hmm. and, and learning from the other people that are facing the same challenges or things that I am. And so how do we draw that out more versus using that space to try to cram more models and theory into people's head, which just don't, 
you know, it, it doesn't matter how well you know a model. It matters what you do with that model and how much you use it. So how do we get that doing happening more than, um, you know, than the theory aspect? Yeah, in, in my day job, I run a, uh, a group that uh, puts on a couple of small conferences every year with about 300 people. And we try, to, I mean, and we do have a lot of PowerPoints, you know, because it's, yeah. it's just the way things work. But we have, over the last three or four years, we have tried to uh, find speakers or encourage speakers who to do things in a different way. I mean, you maybe still use a little yeah. PowerPoint, but we've had like role plays and uh, this the, the, in the upcoming conference that we're having and there some people are doing a uh, case study about how to do a workplace investigation and that sort of thing using film clips from a, a, a recent season of the bachelorette so it's uh, okay. you know, it, it's not it's it it, it it changes the dynamic i think in the room a little bit and and that's what's really interesting to me about experiential learning i also have a uh, I work with a company on occasion that does a, uh, a two and a half day role play that's built around a business case that may lock people in hotel rooms and basically tell them you're in charge of this company. And then they have act actual role players who drop in and out of the various rooms, bringing different business problems and immersing these people in a high pressure kind of work environment, you know, mm -hmm. where they, they can't get hurt because it's not real, right. but it teaches them how to, it teaches them how to react to these types of questions uh, hypothetically instead of having to deal with it, you know, directly in the workplace for the first time. And we, re recurringly, this this uh, this particular company's sessions get very very high, uh, rem um, you know, remarks and feedback from the from the attendees about how much they value it because it's such a different kind of training. So I'm I'm a I'm a firm believer of the kind of the same thing that you. Uh, that you just articulated. So well, let's jump into the questions. We're already 10 minutes in, believe it or not. So <laughs> one of the, <laughs> that's okay. We got to get to know each other a little okay, bit. Conversation, right? So um, I think one of the things that, um, and you may have just touched on this a little bit, but what types of training really work today in, in, in a data-driven business world? And you don't really want to just go see a, a, an hour of PowerPoints with charts and numbers. What what kind of, what types of training do work in that environment? Yeah, it's a great question. So we find that today, at least, what works is relevant content to the person that's consuming it. Um, you know, and that sounds kind of simplistic potentially, and it's actually can be very difficult to get to. So how do you actually get something across to somebody that's specific to what it is that they're expected to do, makes sense, and is something that they can take away and understand and go do something with? And, you know, those kinds of design principles around creating something from a training perspective um, can actually be very difficult because you have to really delve into what it is that somebody is expected to do and how they do it and bring that to life for them so that they can relate to it, understand it, easily consume it and get on with what their day is. Um, you know, I still run into a lot of um, voiceover PowerPoints that are 45 minutes long. Um, and I don't know who's consuming those, but those things just make me want to kind of cringe because you typically lose somebody a couple of slides in um, and don't find them necessarily really built for the audience or it's something that somebody thought somebody else should know 
but they haven't delved into understanding the role and the audience well enough to make something that's going to be um, easily consumable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the challenges we face a lot is we have a wide. It's a relatively small group. Say we say we have 300 people, but we we may have people there that are at their first business conference ever, and then people who've been to you know 25 of our events. Yeah. And so the, you know the 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 breadth of of experience and knowledge. And to try, you know, to call to, uh, to to offer useful programs for those people, you know, can often be difficult. We have to be kind of creative when we only have, you know, say, sixteen open slots over two and a half days or something. Um, yeah, you know that, and you brought this up earlier with the conference. And I, a, I think it's awesome that you're trying to figure out different ways for people to connect with their audience and to present something that could be interesting for others in a more interactive way. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've found in doing a lot of those as well is that in an experiential learning perspective and doing that at a conference, A, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, I've talked to some of the academic professors in, the, uh, in this area or in the sales area as of recent, and they have said that. They're like, you know, there's just so much we're being asked to do and to create something like what you're talking about, I know is the right thing to do. And yet I don't have the time to do that with every one of my classes or my lectures. And so, you know, there's a real struggle between, in my mind, between that, we know that that's the right thing to do, but we're not giving ourselves time to do that for people. And I always wonder about that. Is it worth it then doing it in a way that we know doesn't quite work for people to retain information or is it better to put it off and give it the time and then deliver it when it's ready? Yeah, there's a, uh, I was just, I didn't read it, but in the show, uh, the show post, you know, the posted show description, I guess, there's a quote from you that says, there's no doubt that everyone in business must have a continuing evolving skill set. Customers have increasingly high expectations and meeting those expectations demands the ability to leverage evolving technologies and new ways of working. But all too often, organizations send their staffs to five-day training courses or assign them multiple online learning modules that fail to create measurable results. And, you know, I mean, I think that last part of that two two or three sentences where, Mm -hmm. you know, you get hired in and you, you you know, you get to go to, you know, supervisor 101 school or, you know, this is our culture and here's what you need to know about, you know, how to run a cash or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're all blocked out. Many of them are online created by videos, you know, and they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, in, in the case of a, say a, a retailer, they're trying to bring, you know, hundreds or thousands of people a year online and at least expose them to the culture and some of the expectations in a, in a consistent way. Right. So, so I, I think part of that is, you know, it's necessary to train that way, mm-hmm. but but it, you know, to your point, it, it offers some challenges because it, it doesn't sink in with everybody in the same way. How 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 can a comp, you know how can a company that has to I mean I think that's necessary I guess is what I'm trying to say. But what else could companies do? Do you think beyond that that, that helps them? Help them. Yeah, you know I think this is a fascinating question, and what I would challenge back with is what are people able to do after being really immersed in that kind of a setting? Like, are they able to do what it is that they're expected to do? And I think that there's a, there's a point that we've been working on with a lot of clients around the time that it takes for somebody to do something that they're expected to do at work 
versus the time that we give them or expect them to ramp up in. And if in having that conversation up front, I think makes it really helpful to then be able to know how to space out those courses or those, those modules as it aligns to your expectations of what somebody can do at work. And, and it's interesting when you get down to that really granular level and in retail, this would be a, a prime example, like, um, do you expect somebody on their first day to be able to work the cash register and have great customer interactions and make certain that their quickest time of day goes smoothly? Probably not. Yeah. But, we tend, but we tend to train in those first days for that exact scenario. So what if it's after the first two weeks you expect them to then be able to do that, or maybe the first month they could do that. But in the first day, you expect them to just understand the lay of the store. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And so if you get granular in your expectations of and what's possible for somebody to do in the amount of time that you've got, um, I think that it makes it easier to then set up the onboarding or whatever it is to that expectation versus, hey, we're going to put you through this five-day immersive thing where you're going to learn everything you needed to know to do to hit six months and running. But now you, after the five days, you have to go start to do it. And we know that it's going to take some time for you to get ramped up. I did retail in high, in high school and college. And um, you, you have to understand it from somebody. And then you have to be able to do it and practice it. And there's so many different facets that go into retail from the store operations and the technology that's used to the interaction with customers, to knowing where stuff is, to knowing how you can return things. You know, there's so many different facets. And if we break that down, I bet you get a more realistic view of what the expectations are of what somebody can actually do in their first week, two weeks, three weeks, month, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I go to, I go to Starbucks. I have one cup of coffee a day and I usually yeah. start with Starbucks and email. I sit inside Starbucks and watch people and read email and the place that I go most days, they, they, they've hired a new cashier, um, you know, who's a nice, nice young guy, but he just isn't getting the Starbucks, you know, you can watch everybody else kind of work around him and mm-hmm. he's not able to do it. He's running the cash register and he's just not able to keep up. And I keep thinking, I wonder if he'll be here tomorrow. You know, not that he's done anything terrible. He just, right. he, isn't, he isn't getting it, you know, whatever yeah. it is. And, and, and it's, it, it, I, I, it, it's almost a, a little bit, it makes me almost feel a little, weird thinking about that, but I can just see that, you know, in the next week or so, they're going to probably say, uh, sorry, this isn't working out. Anyway, not, yeah. not to criticize my baristas. Um, <laughs> so one of the things, we have about 11 minutes left, so let me do the reset that I missed. Um, I'm Michael Vandervoort. I'm hosting today's show, which is on October October 1st, 2019, and our guest is Juliana Stancampiano, and she's the CEO of Oxygen. Um, and they do, they work with clients on creating different kinds of training experience. And so we're talking about how, uh, how to stop wasting money on ineffective training programs. So, uh, anyway, so that's the reset. Um, one of the things I want, I had in here was, so when there's, there's often, I mean, you know, in any year companies will face challenges. Sometimes they're tough. And quite often the first thing that gets suggested is we need some training. And we're starting to see these kind of things where I mentioned Starbucks and I think a couple other companies have done it. Like there have been harassment or there's been a, a, you know, a bad call made by somebody, you know, to the police that led to a bad 
PR incident. And these companies are just kind of, you know, Chipotle with food safety, they shut down every store in the chain for a whole day or whatever. And they do training to try to make this better. And it's, you know, it it sounds good in theory. Um, And I don't know that that's exactly what you were talking about with this particular point that I was reading, but sometimes training isn't the way to fix a a tough challenge, I guess. And how, how do you know when it is and when it isn't? Yeah, so I think I think your examples are um, pretty good PR reactions <laughs> to things that are really bad that happen publicly facing. Um, and I'm in Seattle where Starbucks is, and um, I remember on Howard Schultz's second stint, the first thing that he did was he shut down all stores globally, and everybody went through a day of training on the process of making coffee because he felt like they needed to get back to their roots. And there was probably, you know, my, my view is that there's probably a lot of good that happened in that that was way beyond the training, right? So get mm-hmm. every, A, it's a global like camaraderie building of a company that has a huge footprint, which you rarely would be able to, to see that happen. Um, it's investing in your people. Maybe they feel like they needed that. Maybe they didn't, but they get the time spent with their peers, their leadership, et cetera, which you can't really p- replace. So there's a lot of good that can come from things like that. Um, my my take on that, though, is that also in the background, there's probably some systemic things that aren't working that need to be changed. And I think doing that kind of a, a training reboot that has been done in the Chipotle and Starbucks as, as examples um, was the first public step, but also gave them time to figure out what was going on in the background that they needed mm-hmm. to fix so that they could alleviate that from needing to happen again. And go ahead. No, I was just going to say that makes sense. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of times, so another example of this though, that's fairly easy, I think to understand is we get asked or, or we'll be told a lot of times, like our people need to collaborate better. And if they would just work together more, they'd be able to move faster Um, have a more cohesive showing to our customer, whatever it is, right? Like collaboration can do so many amazing things. Um, And then you ask them, you say, well, okay, well, tell me how these people are rated from a performance management standpoint. And they're like, oh, we have this system and it's typically a numbers rating system. And there's a lot of companies that have also moved on to this, but it's like, hey, we're happy to teach somebody collaboration and put them through the training, but if they're not, if they're being rated against their colleagues, you're probably going to continue to have collaboration, and it's not mm-hmm. going to be about the training. It's going to be more about the structure in which people are in that they get paid for, <laughs> yeah. and how that happens. And so, you know, let's think about these things a little bit more holistically than immediately assume that we need more training and people can't do something. Um, versus what the what an underlying problem might be, um, and, and we we see this a lot. Another example in a customer service call center was with the frontline supervisors that we worked with. We heard over and over again that they needed better time management skills. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine in those environments, um, it's escalation heavy. They have to deal with so many things. Their people need to know how to manage time. And when we got in and started working with the frontline supervisors and we asked them to list out all the things, how they prep for their day and all the things that they do in the day, we realized that there was one type of escalation. So A, we realized these people were amazing at time management and like I could take courses from them because they're way better at it than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And B, 
that it was a type of escalation call that would come in that would blow their day up almost every day. And so we talked to the company more about how do we fix the root of that problem versus trying to shove time management courses down your people's throats that they don't necessarily need. Interesting. So whether you talk about inter- another question or a slightly different question, I guess, whether you're talking about experiential learning or interactive training, how do companies, how do you go about developing those types of programs? Because they take, in my opinion, anyway, they take a little extra work and keeping yeah. them being delivered effectively by, you know, especially as, as you have churn of trainers and that kind of stuff, it, it can be kind of challenging. So how, how can, what, what should employers be thinking about in that type of a, trying to provide that type of training? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And uh, how do you create within your company a service-based model? Instead of creating a training, create a service around a training um, so that we're connected with the business, we understand what the needs are, and we know when things change so that we can update and make relevant whatever it is that we created. And when you have a services mentality, and, and we create these with companies, we look at like kind of their operating models and how they how they work from a internal services provider to the company, whether you're in a sales enablement function or any of those kind of areas, um, whether it's in HR that you're supporting the business. And when you set your internal teams up to be a service, you start to provide ongoing you know, updates and considerations for those. And then um, a part of it is starting with the training. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of internal companies like, okay, yeah, would you like me to design? You know, stepping back and looking at the needs that are going on, um, organizing it in a way that's easy to know where stuff is so that you can easily update it makes a massive difference. Um, and when you put a little bit of structure on the front end, it pays off tenfold downstream when you have to go and update something, you know where it is, you know what's in it, you know what needs to be updated, and it can be done like, it's almost like a a technology update, right? We get them Mm -hmm. all the time on our devices. You run your update, and you've got the latest um, stuff that's been created. And it's the same thing that you can do from a, a learning perspective. So there's a there was a statement in, in something that I read that that you had provided uh, that that talked about focusing on outcomes is the key to building useful programs. I think that part of that rolls into what you just said. But how how, how do you de- like I guess how do you think about the outcome of training a- as part of the design? If that that seems to be kind of what you're saying. So how do you how do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And when we look at outcomes look at them as what are you expecting somebody to do that's going to affect what business results? Um, and when you start from that kind of more macro outcome of what are we driving as a business? Now, you know, what's the part of the different people in order to drive that? You can break it down um, into measurable results for people. And I think, you know, this goes back to understanding what people need to know and do in their role mm. to be successful. Yeah, and when you yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was I was going to say it does seem to me at times that when companies design training, that's more likely what do we want to hear, have these people listen to us say, rather right. than you know I mean we we need to deliver this message to all our employees, right? That's that's the outcome that HR may see or you know something like that. But you're you're changing that up and saying what's the what's the 
where what are the people going to do when they leave the room totally yeah because it doesn't really matter what happens in the room right it's one of those things that matters what happens after the room yeah Um, people say this about parenting you know it's it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily um what your kid does at home it matters what they do in the classroom or with peers that's where parenting really you see parenting happening uh when you're not there and so it's kind of the same thing it's like doesn't it does matter what happens in the room, obviously, but what matters is what people do with it afterwards. That makes sense. Um, we're down to under two minutes. Um, any, so I want to do two things. Uh, I want to give you a chance to tell people where to find you. So 90 seconds. So uh, why don't you share your contact information, whether that's uh, social media or otherwise, tell people where they get a hold of you if they want to. Yeah, my handle is J Stan Campiano on link, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. So that's the easiest way to find me. Oxygen is Oxygen EXP on all those same different kind of outlets. Cool. And then uh, with one minute or so, any final thoughts on training? Any last profound? Yeah, you know, the thing I think that I would say is that we've been doing what I would, what we call an, or trademarking content as an experience. So what if we thought about creating experiences instead of training? And where would the need for training go? Um, and we recently had this, we've been doing this with a lot of different clients where it's like, hey, you need a playbook, but what if we just created an experience that was driving the outcome of your playbook and then you wouldn't need training for a playbook? Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice thinking ahead. We're down to the last 30 seconds. Juliana, thanks for being our guest today. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, we'll, uh, we'll end hopefully here with a little music. I hope you have a great rest of your week, Juliana. Thanks. You too. I appreciate being on.